the structure and growth of the Bible. You will remember last week we spent our time considering the title, the name, Bible. I have written up on the board there the way it has come, who wants to copy it down later. And also the first, we, we've, we've seen that the Bible is a library of 66 books, and we have seen that it has a major twofold division uh, which we call testaments, the Old and the New Testament, but more correctly should be called covenants. The books of the Old Covenant, 39 books of the Old Covenant, and the 27 books of the New. Now, we're not going to go over that at all this evening. If anyone wants to hear that, they can listen to the tape of it, the recording. This week we come to um, the arrangement of the books. How did these 66 books come to their present position? Now, if you will, I would like you to turn in your Bibles to the index uh, page before the actual first book, you should find in your Bible an index or list of the books of the Old and the New Covenants. Now, if you'll keep that open in front of you, it will help you a little. Um, some of you will know, probably, even in your memory, all the books in their order, but others of you may not. Now, there are three main arrangements of the books of the Bible. There is the Hebrew arrangement. There is what we call the Septuagint arrangement. That's the oldest translation of the Bible, of the Old Testament, into Greek, before Christ. And then there is the final or Christian arrangement of the books of the whole. Bible. So we have three main arrangements of the books of the Bible. The whole subject of the way in which the various books came to occupy their final positions is fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And of course this evening we will only be able to touch on it. I'm afraid I... Um, I am not an a great enough authority to be able to go into all the ins and outs of the way these books came to their final position, or indeed how they came finally to be included in the canon. But this evening we shall cover the main points of it all. We shall deal firstly with the Hebrew arrangement of the Old Testament. That is, the Hebrew arrangement that the Jews of our Lord's day were acquainted with and have been acquainted with ever since. Then we shall deal with the Septuagint or Hellenist arrangement of the Old uh, Covenant, the Old Testament, along with the final and Christian arrangement. So we're going to divide it into two. So first of all, we shall look at the Hebrew arrangement of the books. But I ought just to say that within these three main arrangements, 
there was a very great variation uh, in the position of individual books. We shall look at that as we go along. But although the three main arrangements have general outlines, within those general outlines there was quite a variation um, of order. Well, now, firstly, the Hebrew arrangement of the books of the Old Covenant. Now, I have written up here on this board the Hebrew arrangement of the Old Covenant. And you will see straight away that it is a threefold arrangement. Our Lord Jesus spoke of this arrangement when, after his resurrection, he spoke of those things concerning himself in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Uh, the Psalms was sometimes the title was the Psalms, more technically it was called the writings. But the Psalms were the first and major part of the last division of the Hebrew arrangement of the um, Bible. Now this was the Bible that the Lord Jesus used. And this was the arrangement that he had. This was the arrangement of the books that he was acquainted with when he discussed in the temple with the doctors of the, of the law um, about, uh, um, the, he said he was about his father's business in his father's house. This was the, the um, arrangement of the books uh, that he saw. Now you see it's three, threefold. First the law, or what we even today the Jews still refer to as the Torah. And that, of course, is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You all know that. The first five books, sometimes called the five books of Moses, or by this, their Greek names, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's those five books, in that order, comprise the law. The prophets were subdivided, as you can see, into two. The former prophets, Joshua, Judges, and then the two books of Samuel were one book in the Jewish arrangement, and the two books of Kings were one book. So they had only four books in what they called the former prophets. And then the second division of the prophets was the latter prophets, and that was Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then the twelve, what we call the twelve minor prophets, were gathered by the Jews into one book. They were on one row. So you have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, three books, and this was the fourth, and it was called, it was entitled, the twelfth. They called it the twelfth. And then the third division, the writings, um, they were subdivided into three. The first um, subdivision consisted of the Psalms, followed by Proverbs, followed by Job. In other words, there you have more or less the poetical or wisdom literature of the Old Testament. And then the second subdivision was called the Five Scrolls, or the Megillah. The Five Scrolls. Still used today, I shall say something about that in a moment, in Jewish circles. All this, by the way, is still used in Jewish circles today. The five scrolls. The Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, <laughs> Ecclesiastes, Esther. And then lastly, the 
Hebrew arrangement of the Bible. We will not call it the Jewish Bible. That would be unfair because the Hellenist arrangement of the Bible is also a Jewish arrangement. We call it the Hebrew arrangement. Remember Paul called himself a Hebrew of the Hebrews, whereas, for instance, Stephen was a Hellenist. That's just by the way. The last subdivision of this uh, third major division of the Old Testament of the Hebrew arrangement. But Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, that was one book, and Chronicles. Well, now then, what can we say? How did this threefold Hebrew division of the old books of the Old Covenant take place? We cannot, in fact, with any certainty, state its origin. It is often suggested that these three divisions, the law, the prophets, the writings, represent the three stages of growth in the Bible, in the Old Testament. And its recognition uh, as canonical. Uh, we shall deal with that in a little while when we talk about the canon of the scripture. But this is the oft-repeated statement. First the law, then the uh, prophets, then the writings. It's interesting to note this fact that roughly in this Hebrew arrangement we have in the first five books the nucleus of the Old Testament faith. The absolute hardcore of the Old Testament faith. And then, in the next division, the prophets, both former and latter, we have an objective expansion and interpretation. That is, a defining of how you go wrong, <laughs> objectively, and how you get into the right, objectively. Take this life, for instance, and you point out from Saul how you go wrong. And then you take David and you point out how you go right. So you're objectively pointing it out. You take a Samson and you show how, what God could have done in him and what he did with himself. Objectively, it's an expansion of God's law. God says certain things in his law. It's the, it's the hard core of the Old Testament faith. Now, in this next section of prophets, you begin to find that the prophets who write the history, as well as the prophets who prophesy, bring God's word in a living way, they both had this object to point out and define what is right and what is wrong to illustrate, if you like, in lives. That's a very, very interesting point. These uh, former prophets are not what you would call prophets, many of you. Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. You would say they're history. But the, the old rabbi said, oh, no, they're not history. They're, we put those under the prophets, you see, because, uh, uh, I'll come to that in a moment, there was a reason for it anyway. The rabbis had a reason for it, you see. And they, they, it was really an expansion in an objective way of what was found in the first five books. And the last division, the writings, we could say was a subjective expansion and interpretation of the first five books. Take Psalms. Take the Psalms. It's all subjective. See? 
It's what's happening inside of me. What's happening inside of me, you see? My brother, and you just think of, of the psalmist. He's, he's pouring out his heart in a subjective way. And what about Job? Well, it's very subjective. It's all what's happening inside of the man, you see. And uh, then you take Proverbs, in a sense, it's in one way, it's subjective, it's, not, it's certainly objective as well, and so you can go on. It's not wholly true of these three, of these three books and Jewish arrangement, of course. Um, but nevertheless, it's a very interesting thought that lies behind that, that roughly you've got first the nucleus of the Old Testament faith, then the expansion in, ob in an objective way, expansion and interpretation of that faith, and then uh, thirdly, uh, a subjective expansion, expansion interpretation of that faith subjectively. Well, whatever we may feel about that, <clears throat> we can say that the law... The first five books, called by the Jews the five-fifths, because they saw it as a whole, they called it colloquially the five-fifths. Um, these five books were associated in their main body with one another from a very early date indeed, and were the first to be recognized together as a body of books. That's the first five books of the um, Bible. There seems to have been no variation down through the centuries in the order of these first five books. Right through to, to, to today, there's never been a variation of this order. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's an amazing fact. And very little controversy either. The second division, the prophets, is interesting since, as I have pointed out to you, it contains a large amount of history. That is the former prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. Most of it is history, not what you and I would call prophecy. These books were not included here merely because prophets were responsible for their writing. In fact, the prophets did write them. But that wasn't the reason why they were included here merely. They were included here because the rabbis said it was history interpreted. Now that's prophecy. I hope you get hold of that. Uh, some people have got the weirdest ideas of prophecy. They think it's all prediction. It's not prediction. Uh, uh, it is. It includes prediction, but it's not wholly prediction. Um, prophecy is the interpretation of things. Uh, uh, in, a, in a situation, bringing it right home. Well, that's why they were included here. Um, but not only because they're written by prophets, but because it was history interpreted. Now, this is true of Joshua to Kings. It is history interpreted. It's not just ordinary history. It's history interpreted. You read in the book of Kings and you'll find things like uh, uh, this king, for instance, but he did not destroy the high places. That's not, that's not just history. That's history interpreted. See? Because he didn't do that a bit later on, you'll discover what's happened. See? Now, Joshua tells you all that the people of God possessed of the promised land. And it also very quietly says, and they didn't possess this. And they didn't possess that. It says in one place that because there were chariots of iron there. So they couldn't, they didn't possess it, you see. And just very quietly. But when you come to Judges, Judges tells you all about what they didn't possess 
and how the very part they didn't possess was used by the devil to take what they had possessed so that they came back into slavery. Now that's history interpreted. And so we could go on. We've got the whole story of Saul and David. And it's not just the story of one bad king and one good king, but it's the story, is history interpreted. So, you see, that's why it was included by the rabbis. They weren't so silly as some people think. Uh, that's why uh, it was included under the term the prophets. The latter prophets contain prophecy as we generally understand it. Uh, the main part... Uh, the, main, the main point of interest uh, here is the exclusion of Daniel. Now, I should imagine this should raise a great difficulty with you all. Because of all the books of the, uh, of the Bible, I should think, if I asked you, give me an example of a prophetic book, I would have thought most of you would have said, oh, Daniel. But the rabbis didn't include Daniel in the prophets. <laughs> it's the most remarkable thing. Uh, they didn't uh, feel he should be there. That, that's a, a, just a little point. It's a point of interest. Uh, he's not included there. Another point of interest is that the 12 minor prophets were all gathered together into one book, into one volume. That's another point of very real interest in the Jewish arrangement. We should also note that there was a certain amount of variation of the books in the latter prophets. Sometimes, for instance, you find Isaiah doesn't come first. Jeremiah sometimes comes first, and uh, it varies. Uh, this doesn't vary much, but this does vary to a certain amount. So, um, so we come to the third division, the writings. Um, they are a little more difficult to understand because the writings seem to be almost miscellaneous. Um, this division had the greatest variation in the order of its books. And here we have given the most general and accepted one. We can understand why the Psalms were inc included in this division because the Psalms were the hymnal of the Old Testament church. It's their hymn book. And that's why they were included here. And Proverbs, we can understand, because it's a collection of Proverbs. And um, uh, we can understand Job being put here, because Job is a drama in many ways. All that we can understand. It's what we call wisdom literature. But what, and we can also understand it, the five scrolls being here, that's these five little books, the Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. Uh, they were gathered together uh, because um, they were read, each one separately, at each of the, f uh, on five great occasions in the life of God's people annually. Uh, the first and this may help you if you remember this and read these books in the light of it. The first, the Song of Solomon, was always read at Passover. You might be rather interested to look at that. It was always read, all Jews heard the scroll of the Song of Songs read at the Passover in all synagogues to this day. And Ruth was always read um, at Pentecost. 
and lamentations, as one would expect, on the anniversary of the destruction of Jerusalem. And Ecclesiastes was read, <laughs> very interestingly, at the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, which is a feast of fullness. It's rather interesting that Ecclesiastes, vanity, vanity, all is vanity, should be read at that point to remind people. And uh, Esther was uh, always read, as we would expect, at the Feast of Purim, which commemorates the deliverance of the Jews in the days of Esther. Now these uh, books are still read today. In every synagogue, if you went into the synagogue at Richmond at Passover, you'll hear the Song of Solomon being read. And if you go at Pentecost, you'll hear Ruth and so on, still read to this day. Well, we can understand in some way how these two divisions came together um, in the writing. But it is not so easy to understand why Daniel is here. Now you go away and think about it. Why do you think that Daniel was put there? And why do you think Ezra and Nehemiah was put there? And, and Chronicles, this is the most remarkable thing of all. It's absolutely unchronological. Chronicles should come there. Chronicles comes first, and then Ezra follows. You know that the last verses of, Chron of the last chapter of Second Chronicles are the first verses of Ezra. Well, then, isn't it remarkable that the rabbis, or whoever it was, tore away chronicles from there and put it last? And the most remarkable thing. Now, why? Because, you see, chronicles finished the, the Hebrew Old Testament. So, if uh, a saint under the Old Covenant was reading the scriptures uh, uh, just before the days of our Lord, he would have started at Genesis and worked through, and when he came to the last scroll or roll, he would have finished at Chronicles. It's most interesting. We can say that these last books here are all to do with the end times. Now, is that why they're put there? <laughs> I mean, the, these three should be here. Their history and their history interpreted. So they should be with the prophets. Or someone said they weren't written by a prophet. Well, there, there may be a, an argument for that. They were written by a priest. Uh, Daniel, by the way, wasn't a prophet. He wasn't a priest either. He was um, a statesman. <laughs> he was prime minister, actually. Uh, so, I mean, uh, uh, some people say that's why those books are there. But surely there must be a spiritual meaning. There must be a spiritual meaning in the way these books came to occupy the last part. Now, of course, I think you all know Daniel is all to do with the times of the Gentiles, right down to the end of world history. We can find ourselves, truthfully, without being fanciful, in the book of Daniel. We're meant to. Meant to. It deals with the times of the Gentiles. And we're in the times of the Gentiles now. Ezra Nehemiah deals with recovery. Recovery. Chronicles deals also with recovery, but it deals with what? It deals with the whole battle over what? The temple. You remember, these two books deal with the same thing as Chronicles, but they deal with the throne and the king, and this, these two books deal with the temple and its services. Now, it is very interesting that the last book of the, old, of the Hebrew arrangement of the Old Covenant dealt with the heart of God's purpose. That is... Um, a house for the Lord, uh, a temple in which he might 
Well, most interesting. Well, I have to leave it, otherwise we'll never finish. We go on to the final arrangement, um, both Septuagint, or Hellenist, and Christian uh, arrangement of the books of both the Old and the New Covenant. Now, I have put it here, very swiftly, you will see the Pentateuch, same as that, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In other words, it corresponds to the law. Now, the historical books, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. One or two Samuels, split into two. One or two Kings, split into two. One or two Chronicles, that's a new edition. Ezra, Nehemiah, new edition. Esther, new edition. All right? Historical books. Poetical books. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Prophetical books. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel's appeared amongst them and the Twelve, as separate books, Hosea, and so on, to Malachi. That is the uh, arrangement, um, the final arrangement, uh, both Hellenist, or Septuagint, and uh, Christian. Now we'll look at it a little more carefully, shall we? First, this the Old Covenant, before we look at the New Covenant. Now, the first thing I want you to note is this. This final arrangement of the old books of the Old Covenant came to us via the Septuagint and the Latin Vulgate. Now, um, I can't spend much time on this this evening, but why was there a Greek uh, version of the Old Testament? Well, it goes back to a terrible division that took place in God's people under the Old Covenant, the Hebrews, as they were called, who stuck to Palestine and the Promised Land and went back to build the temple and lived there and brought up their children and their descendants were there. And the others who all remained in what was called the dispersion. And these folk of the dispersion became much more free, much more sort of broad-minded, much more go-ahead than their contemporaries in the Promised Land. The Hebrews were looked upon as rather prejudiced, rather narrow, rather conservative and old-fashioned. So we, got, we get this, this, uh, these two streams amongst God's people, the Hebrew and the Hellenist. Well, after a while, the Hellenists no longer spoke Hebrew or Aramaic. And therefore they clamoured for the version of, uh, of God's word in the tongue that they were speaking, which was Greek. And so it came about that the Old Testament was translated into Greek, much to the horror of the Hebrews, who looked upon Hebrew as the language of God, and as the language, I might say, of heaven. Uh, they felt it was the most terrible, uh, despoiling, and uh, uh, sacrilege, really, to take the sacred Hebrew of the scriptures and translate it into a vulgar tongue like Greek. But in fact, this vulgar tongue uh, was to influence the, um, uh, the arrangement, the final arrangement of the books very, very greatly indeed. And uh, the Septuagint, or as we call it, the Hellenist arrangement, was a roughly chronological one. They uh, evidently rearranged it into a roughly chronological order. Um, we, it, it, whether it was based, as some scholars 
believe on older Hebrew arrangements, I, we cannot dogmatically say. There are scholars who believe that this Hebrew arrangement uh, was only one arrangement, and that there were others, and that this uh, Hellenist arrangement, in fact, embodies an even older tradition, and they feel may even precede that arrangement. Well, I don't know. This was the arrangement our Lord Jesus knew, and he, he refers to it at least once, uh, if not more times than that, uh, in what he said. Now, um, in this rearrangement of the Hebrew Bible, there were many variations, but it finally resolved itself into the arrangement we have today. We must note one or two things. Ruth has been taken away from the five scrolls there and placed where she belongs at the end of Judges. In fact, it's a, it's a great probability that she was written by the same person who wrote Judges. Uh, that we, you'll have to go back to the studies we took on that. Then again, I want you to also note that Chronicles, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, are taken away from here and they are placed where they should be in roughly, approximately chronological order. One and two chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. In fact, to be absolutely right, well, Esther should come in, in the middle of Ezra. But we can't do that. So they put one, two chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and then Esther at the end. So that seems to be quite... Uh, 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 good. And then they took Lamentations and they took Lamentations away from there and they put Lamentations back with um, oh I didn't put him in. <laughs> they put him back where he belonged with Jeremiah. Um, now of course not all scholars would agree with that. They say he doesn't really belong there but, but certainly uh, it uh, uh, in thought it belongs there. And that's why it was taken away and put there. I personally believe it has a lot to do with Jeremiah. Anyway, there we find it. So, um, that's another point. Then, of course, our dear friend Daniel. He is taken away from there and he's put back where, after all, he does belong there. So, you see, um, it's a very, very interesting rearrangement of the Hebrew scriptures that the uh, Greek-speaking rabbis indulged in. And I'm sure that it wasn't just an indulgement, it was obviously under the hand of the Holy Spirit, for this is the arrangement that finally came to us. And it is interesting, because you see these, as you know, we have Isaiah, and you know with Isaiah, he spans the whole range of prophecy. Then we have Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, the prophets of recovery. You remember the three great ministries of recovery. And it's all very interesting. And of course we expect, we expect Malachi, don't we, uh, to be where he is at the end um, of the Old Covenant. All those things we understand. Well now what about the New Covenant? What about the New Covenant? Well, here we have it. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The historical books, Acts. The didactical, dreadful word. But I'm afraid I, I tried to get away from it, but uh, uh, wherever you read, you'll find this dreadful word. Uh, it just means teaching. 
the didactical books, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1 and 2 Peter, 1 and 2, 3 John and Jude. The didactical books. And the prophetical books, Revelation. Now that's the uh, arrangement that's come to us of the books of the New Covenant. Now what can we say about that? Now, the 27 books of the New Covenant consist of five narrative books. That's five books of narrative. 21 letters. Uh, some of those letters are small personal letters like 2 and 3 John and Philemon and some of them are mighty treaties such as Hebrews and such as um, uh, Romans and Galatians, really. And, of course, we can say Ephesians too. Uh, they're, they're tremendous. They're letters, but they're tremendous. And we have, that brings it to 26 books, and we have one final book of visions, consisting entirely of visions, quite unique in the new uh, covenant. How did this arrangement come about? Well, it's a very interesting study and we haven't got long um, to cover it. But the individual Gospels were originally circulating on their own in various localities. Mark, Peter's young companion, Mark was the young companion of Peter, he put the gospel he had heard Peter preach again and again and again and again. In the end, he sat down and wrote it. And in all probability, Peter corrected him as well as he wrote. The gospel he had heard Peter preach all over the place, and we believe it was written in Rome. Matthew was written in Palestine, and it circulated in Palestine and Syria, Judea and Syria. And it was based largely on a collection, a large collection, of the Lord's sayings. It was very probably written by Matthew himself, if not completely, certainly the largest part of it was. Then Luke, Dr. Luke, Paul's companion, he'd heard Paul preach the gospel so many times he could have preached it himself, no doubt, if he had the gift. He'd heard Paul preach so often. He sat down with another clear-cut objective. He wasn't bothered about the Hebrews, and he wasn't bothered about the Hellenists. He was a Gentile. He wasn't a Jew. Luke was a thoroughgoing Gentile. And uh, he was bothered about the Greek-speaking Gentile. So he said, I'll sit down and I'll write a two-volume history. And so he wrote Luke and Acts. Originally, they were bound together. They were part one and part two, you see, of one book, one volume. And so the doctor sat down and wrote his uh, account of the Lord's life and death, the gospel, according to Luke, and, of course, uh, what we now call Acts. And that circulated amongst Gentiles. It was very favoured by the Gentiles, and all Greek-speaking uh, people, Jews as well. And then, of course, um, uh, as I say, I think a much that... Uh, um, that uh, Paul preached is in Luke's Gospel, probably. We can't say dogmatically, but it's probable that there's much in it. At the end of the first century, John wrote his Gospel, uh, when all the others were written. Now, I want to make this point very clear. 
because John did wrote when he knew that those other Gospels were already circulating and many others as well, some spurious. He knew they were circulating. He sat down and wrote another Gospel, if you like. But this one was not covering the same ground as the others. It was supplementing them. That's very important. And it was an interpretation. Its whole object was was different to the other three Gospels. Now that's very important to understand. And uh, it probably circulated in Asia Minor because John was at Ephesus and that's where it would have gone uh, around those churches in Asia Minor. Now, we said we've got the four Gospels, then and Acts. By the beginning of the second century, the four Gospels, one circulating in Syria and Judea, one in Rome, one in Asia Minor, and one amongst the Gentiles, the Greek-speaking Gentiles, these four books were brought together, and were brought together and bound together, and they were called the Gospel, the Gospel according to Matthew, the Gospel according to Mark, the Gospel according to Luke, the Gospel according to John. In other words, they were brought together under one cover. And when that happened, Acts was separated. It was torn away from Luke and separated. Now it is a most interesting thing. We're talking about the arrangement of the books. This amazing, the amazing way in which these four different Gospels were written, not three of them written not in any way to complement each other written in different parts, brought together, and then John's Gospel supplementing it and added to it. And what do you get? You get the most amazing fourfold picture of Christ. Now that's obvious. It immediately reveals that the Holy Spirit is in this arrangement. For it was not humanly uh, um, arranged. It wasn't as if Mark, Peter sort of wrote a note to Matthew and said, look here, um, uh, Matthew, uh, you get down to writing uh, the life of the Lord, I'm going to get Mark to write it down. I'm too busy, I'm not like you. I'm much busier than you. I'll get down and write it, and you write one, and then we'll bring them both together. Not at all. Not at all. But here's an even more amazing thing. Although the order within these four Gospels varied for a while, in the end it came to the one we had now. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. The first two, king and servant. The second two, man and God. But it's the most amazing thing. And when you go back again to the cherubim, you find you've got it. The head of the lion, the head of the ox, the head of a man, the head of an eagle. Well, you see, it just can't be a a, a human arrangement. It's a most remarkable thing. So, again, we we have to admit that we are in the presence of a tremendous mystery. Where would we be if we only had Matthew? Where would we be if we only had John? We've got this amazing fourfold picture of Christ. Matthew didn't realize he was presenting him as king uh, holy, and yet there is his emphasis. Mark didn't, I think, wholly realize it was 
a servant that he was presenting. The Lord, Luke being a doctor, well, it was naturally, it was the human side that appealed. But isn't it all amazing? Of course, Paul's gospel is very much to do with the church. And the Lord was the head of the new man, you see. So it was man that, that, that was emphasized in Paul's gospel. And of course, John, you know, John emphasized all the time the divinity of the Lord Jesus. Well, I can only bring this to you. It's a really, very, very wonderful. When this, these four Gospels were brought together, Acts was separated from Luke and circulated on its own. Or sometimes it circulated with what we call the Catholic, not the Roman Catholic, but the Catholic or general epistles, which is James and Jude and one and two, Peter. Sometimes Acts was, was circulated with them. Then Paul's letters, Paul's letters, which were amongst the first of the New Testament writings, Paul's letters were at the very beginning kept by the churches or individuals to whom they were addressed and circulated within the, the air. You remember when he wrote to Ephesus, he said, let the folk at Laodicea see this letter <laughs> and let their... And, see that they show you the letter I've sent to them, you see. So they circulated in their own local areas, but they were kept by the churches or companies or individuals to whom they were addressed. But um, by the end of the first century, they had been collected together, all 13, under one cover and entitled The Apostle. I, I don't know whether that was a dig at some of the others, I don't know, but uh, it was came under the, um, the title, The Apostle. And everyone knew what they were talking about when they spoke of what was in The Apostle. It was the, it was the writings of Paul. Gradually, these collections came together. The four Gospels and the 13 letters in The Apostle. And when they came together, what more fitting than to put Acts between them? Because, you see, Acts linked up the Gospels with Paul. It linked up Peter, the supreme figure amongst the Apostles in the Gospels, with Paul, the supreme figure in the New Testament Church. So, you see, Acts came together, uh, came in between, and became the link between the two collections. Gradually, um, as these collections came together, the arrangement we have now grew. Revelation, uh, listen to this, Revelation and Hebrews were the two major works over which there was much discussion and controversy, along with one or two of the small letters, uh, two and three John, two Peter, and uh, Jude, and one or two others. But uh, the two major works were Revelation and Hebrews. And it was not until the fourth century after Christ that they were finally given universal recognition. As long as that, uh, Hebrews and uh, Revelation. We'll talk about that in a moment when we talk about the canon. As this collection grew, there was much variation in the order in which individual books or letters were placed. Nowhere is this more clear than in the book of Revelation, which occupied various positions in the New Testament other than the concluding one. And it's 
It's interesting. You see, John the Apostle never wrote uh, Revelation, as some people think, as the conclusion of the New Testament. Uh, he never wrote it as such. There were, in fact, there was no New Testament at that point to conclude. So he couldn't have written it as a conclusion. Uh, did he write it as a conclusion of the Old Testament? I don't think he would have done. Uh, he saw these visions and he was commanded to put them into writing and he obeyed. And I'm sure that as he did so, he began to realize, you know, this is, uh, as it were, a conclusion of Ezekiel. This somehow seems to me to be the drawing together of Daniel. This seems to me to be the drawing together of Threads and Zechariah and Malachi and, and Joel and, and so on. He no doubt felt that. But he did not realize that he was writing what was destined to become the conclusion of the whole Bible. It was in fact under God's hand, it was under God's hand that after tremendous dispute and controversy and variation of order, the book of Revelation finally was placed at the end of the Bible, and rightly so. And, and where would we be? When you take the first three chapters of Genesis and the last three of Revelation, you have a complete correspondence, just as if nothing existed between a complete correspondence. You would say, whoever wrote the book of Revelation must have been doing it deliberately. And yet you see here is evidence for the Holy Spirit in this work. Well now that uh, is just a little about the arrangement of the books. Um, they're not there by chance. They're there by God's will, by God's placing. Now, finally this evening, uh, a word or two about what we call the canon of scriptures. The canon of scripture. Uh, we have now covered something of the growth and structure of the Bible and the arrangement of the books. But we've got to ask ourselves a question. How was it decided which books should be included in these 66 books and which should be excluded? And who, who made so solemn a decision? And when? Can we answer these questions? It's over these questions that we find and use the word canon. All those, all those books included are called canonical books. And all those excluded are called apocryphal books. Rather a mouthful. Canonical books and apocryphal books. Now the word canon came to us through Latin and Greek from a Semitic word, which meant originally read. And in fact, you've got it in Ezekiel, where we're told that a man took a measuring reed. That's the word, canon, the word we get our, uh, our word through Latin and Greek, canon. We get our English word came from it. Came, that's the word, how we get it, from this word, this Hebrew word, canon. And we get the word ca canal from it, and then it's variation, channel. Uh, the, the idea is something straight, you see. It's a reed. And because the ancient world used it, used this reed for a ruler, 
and for measuring, because it was strange, you see, it came to be, the, this word came to be used of a measuring rod or a carpenter's rule. And from there came to be applied not only to that which measures, but to that which is measured. <laughs> and the whole growth of meaning in the word. And thus it came to have in the end two distinct meanings which have great significance for us biblically. The first was index or list or catalogue. Now when we speak of the canon of scripture we speak of the catalogue of scripture, the catalogue of scriptures. The list of scriptures. You see, you've got your Bible open, and here you've got the canon of the Old Testament and the canon of the New. That is the list of the books. All those that are in the Bible, the 66 books. And it also came to mean not only an index, uh, a certain group or number comprising something, it also had this other meaning of a rule or a standard or a law the value and authority contained within those things. Not only the actual list of the things, but the actual so intrinsic value, the intrinsic authority, the thing that was in them. Now, by the 4th century, it had come to be applied to the Bible, which had arrived at its conclusive arrangement. The term covered not only the list of books recognised as inspired, and authoritative, which comprise our Bible, all 66 of them, but the authority of those books against all others as supremely authoritative in life, faith, life, and conduct. Now that's very important. We must be clear, and do follow me if you can, you may be getting a bit tired now, we must be clear that the books of the Bible have not become authoritative because they're canonical. They are canonical because they are divinely authoritative. Now that's very important. The book itself has got divine authority within it. Therefore, it's canonical. It belongs to the Bible. If it hasn't got that divine authority and inspiration, then it is apocryphal. <laughs> that is not within the Bible. We must get that very clear. We should also point out another thing. No church councils or other groups ever canonized scripture. They may have canonized people, but they have never canonized scripture. Ever. Never. They merely recognized what was already acknowledged over many years and in wide circles. This is very important to our understanding of what was included in the Bible and what was excluded. Now let's very swiftly take the canon of the Old Covenant. The process was a long and gradual one. It would seem quite reasonable to say, to state, that it followed approximately these three divisions of the Hebrew arrangement. We have no uh, uh, dogmatic and uh, definite authority for stating that, but it would seem quite reasonable that it did. Uh, perfectly reasonable. 
Certainly, by our Lord's time, the old covenant was complete. If you look at Luke chapter 24 and verse 44, you will discover the Lord speaks of the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. In other words, it was complete. Uh, by the way, the word Psalms there was used to cover the whole division, not just the book of Psalms. So it seems it was complete. Now, there is another very interesting sidelight which reveals that it was complete. Do you remember in Luke chapter 11 and verse 51 and Matthew chapter 23 and verse 35, the Lord Jesus spoke of all the righteous blood, all the blood shed, all the righteous blood shed from Abel to Zechariah. Now this is very interesting because why did he use Zechariah? If we take this arrangement of the scriptures, <laughs> there, were, there were martyrs after, after Zechariah. But you see, the Lord was using this. And if you look at 2 Chronicles, chapter 24, let me just look it up, chapter 24 and verse 21, you will discover the last martyr recorded in the Hebrew arrangement of the Bible was Zechariah. And the first was, of course, in Genesis chapter 4 and verse, let me just find it for you, 8. Verse 8 was Abel. So the Lord Jesus was simply saying, he was taking the arrangement of the Hebrew Bible. Saying, the first martyr recorded in our Bible was Abel. The last one was Zechariah. I say to you that all that blood will not be overlooked. You see? He knew that it wasn't chronological. <laughs> There were, there were others who actually died chronologically after Zechariah. So this is a very interesting sidelight to the fact that they must have been complete uh, by the time of our Lord. It seems quite clear that our Lord, the Apostles, and the New Testament Church viewed the Old Testament in its Hebrew arrangement as divinely authoritative and inspired. Indeed, we must add that from the very beginning it would seem that the books which now comprise our Old Testament were recognized as authoritative and inspired. The very fact of debate over some of them reveals this. You see, why did you know the Jews love to debate? Um, I think sometimes some Gentile scholars forget this. Jews love to haggle. Always had them. Love to haggle. Uh, nothing a Jew likes more than a good, thoroughgoing debate. And uh, the old rabbis were no exceptions. They were masters of debate. And they loved to have this open-air type of debate over anything. Anything they could debate was, uh, or dispute about. And that's, in fact, how we've got the Talmud, from these disputations. But um, uh, going back to this point, uh, you see... The very fact that the rabbis debated and disputed some of these books as to whether they were canonical or not reveals that they were very widely held as divinely authoritative and inspired. Otherwise they wouldn't have bothered. It was just this that they discussed. Should it be included or should it not be included? It is included, but should it be? Yeah. It was academic points that they were getting at. Now let's consider these three main divisions. First, the law. 
How did this come to be recognized? From the very beginning, the Pentateuch was recognized as the word of God. There may have been additions and so on to it. Um, I mean, Moses didn't write the account of his own death. That's quite obvious. Uh, so there must have been additions to the first five books of the uh, Pentateuch. But it was the earliest part of God's word to be officially recognized. And probably at a very early date indeed, and with little if any controversy at all, those first five books were recognized as the law of God from the beginning, and anyone who contradicted it, well, uh, they were in for a very, very bad time indeed, uh, as far as God's people were concerned. So we can, we can say that about that. The second division, the prophets, the two main divisions, that's the first, the law, the first five books, and this division, were in the main part recognized before, uh, it would seem anyway, by Ezra's time. That's the mid-fifth century B.C. By the second century B.C., they were fully recognized, although over Ezekiel, there was much debate. Now, why was there much debate and dispute over Ezekiel? Well, because it, it was due to his very involved visions and the fact that they, the rabbis couldn't reconcile the account of the temple and its services in Ezekiel 40 to 48 with the Pentateuch. Now, that reveals a very real critical acumen on the part of the rabbis. They weren't so silly as some uh, tend to think they were. That's why Ezekiel was discussed for a long, long time. The third division, the writings, is the one we have the greatest difficulty over. It seems certain that by our Lord's time it was officially recognized, and in all probability much earlier. Yet as late as 70 AD, when Jerusalem was being destroyed, um, there was heated debate amongst a certain school of rabbis over Esther because it was so thoroughly pagan. They thought, should she really be in the canon at all, scripture? Over Ecclesiastes because it was so unorthodox. They, especially the Pharisees didn't like it at all. It seemed terribly worldly. And, uh, um, and the Song of Songs because the, the New Testament rabbis weren't exactly fond of Solomon. They felt he was rather immoral. And uh, therefore they really did wonder whether his song about one of his loves should have ever got into scripture as they felt. And Proverbs, which again was partly to do with Solomon. They didn't quite feel that he could have been so wise, um, really, with that kind of life lying behind it. So there was great discussion, even as late, as late a date as that. But it is interesting to note that the conclusion of those debates in 70 AD established once and for all the divinely authoritative nature of those four books. 
there, there was an absolute recognition of those books as canonical. Now, just a few words about apocryphal writings. Now, look here. I, I haven't much time left to me now, and I want to say a little bit about the New Testament. But all these books are apocryphal books. And believe me, this is just a tiny fraction of apocryphal Old Testament literature. There was a positive flood, a deluge of literature in the silent years between Malachi and the Lord Jesus. These are just a few of them. I can tell you, you've got a lot more upstairs if you want to go and fish them out. But you can come and look at them, the books of the Ma Maccabees, the wisdom of Ben Siri, the apocalypse of Ezra, the wisdom of Solomon, the book of Jubilees, the apocalypse of Abraham and the ascension of Isaiah, if you ever heard that he ascended, the testaments of the twelve patriarchs, the apocalypse of Barak and the assumption of Moses, the letter of Aristias, and so on and so on. I can't tell you. You come and have a look at them, you'll find them very interesting. All that's what we call apocryphal literature. It was never included in the canon of the Old Testament. Now, uh, why? It was they, these, these books, the apocryphal writings, especially these here, Tobias, Judah, the Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, the Prophecy of Baruch, and one or two Maccabees, those books which are often included in uh, Catholic versions and old Lutheran and Anglican versions of the Bible, um, these apocryphal writings, although viewed in many cases as valuable and instructive, were never accorded by the rabbis the same recognition as the canonical books of the Old Covenant. It was the uniform tradition of the Jews that Malachi ended prophetic and scriptural inspiration. The Septuagint included a number of these apocryphal writings. All these here you will find in the Septuagint version. The Greek-speaking rabbis, the Hellenist rabbis, they included them. And although, but although they included them, Greek-speaking Jews never at any point looked upon them as canonical. They looked upon them just as instructive and valuable, but not as canonical. In the same way that Luther said, let's include them at the end of the Old Testament. But he wrote a little note just to say, these books are for, uh, good for instruction, they're valuable, but they're not inspired and authoritative. In the same way as the rest. Now, um, when, however, Greek-speaking Gentile Christians began to read the Septuagint version, they tended to accept the whole as Scripture, making no distinction. And thus, these books passed into the Latin Vulgate. Here you've got it, if you want to look at them all, Monsignor Knox. This version, you'll find them all translated if you ever want to read them in that version. So they passed from this Greek version into the Latin Vulgate and thus into um, the, our Bible. Generally, the, the, the greatest scholar amongst the church fathers was the one who clearly defined the difference. In fact, it's to him we owe the term apocryphal books. Nevertheless, the Roman Catholic Church I can't remember at what date, 1500 and something, I believe, but I'm not absolutely sure, finally accepted these books as canonical, which the Reformers and the Protestants refused to do. 
Now that's all very interesting, isn't it? We must, however, say this, if it's confusing you a little. We must say this, that whilst there has been universal recognition and unanimity in the end over the 39 books of the, which comprise the Old Covenant from an early date, there has never been anything anywhere near unanimity on the apocryphal books of the Old Testament. And that's why uh, we believe they have not got the testimony of the Holy Spirit uh, as canonical. Now, do you think I've just got uh, a few minutes just to cover the New Testament canon? Mm -hmm. I, I've already covered most of it in the matter of the arrangement. What can we say about the canon of the New Testament? The process of the, of the New Testament canon was again, like the Old uh, Testament canon, a gradual one, though it wasn't as long. It didn't take as long. Nearly the whole New Testament as we now have it was written by the end of the first century after Christ. The first century and the, nearly the whole of the New Testament as we now have it was written. The Lord himself had promised that the Holy Spirit would lead the apostles into all truth. Now, will you just look that up? John chapter 14, verse 26. Jesus said that the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Now, isn't that wonderful? Bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. He will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all things that I have said to you. Turn over to chapter 16, verse 12. I have yet many things to say to you. Now, isn't that wonderful? I have yet many things to say to you. The Lord never said them then. But they were said. I have yet many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are come. Now, will you note two verses of the Lord's own words? Past, he will bring to remembrance all things that I've said to you. Present, he will lead you into all the truth. Future, he will show you things to come. That comprises the whole New Testament. The New Testament is the written deposit of that truth that the Holy Spirit brought past, he will bring to remembrance all things that Jesus said. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Present, well, we have Acts, and we have all the letters. You can't bear them now, he said. But through the Holy Spirit, in the apostles and others, he taught them. And so he, he led us into all truth, as Paul put it, the truth as it is in Jesus. So we've got all these uh, books and letters from Acts right the way through to Jude. And it's all to do with the truth as it is in Jesus. Lead you into all truth. And he will show you, the Holy Spirit will show you things to come, the book of Revelation. So there you've got it. It's the most amazing thing. Well, I, 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 um, I must say that to me, it thrills me that point, really. Lord Jesus covered the whole canon of the New Testament in that way. By 140 A.D., the Gospels, Acts, and the Apostle, that's the writings of Paul, were recognized as divinely inspired and authoritative, with one exception, to be placed alongside the Old Testament canon. 
Now look at 2 Peter, chapter 3, verse 15, and you read a most remarkable statement of Peter's. 2 Peter 3, 15, Peter says, And count the forbearance of our Lord as salvation, so also our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, speaking of this as he does in all his letters. There are some things in them hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. That's the most amazing thing. That word scripture is the word used of the Old Testament. And Paul is speaking of, and um, Peter is speaking of Paul's writing as scripture. As early as Peter, the writings of the Apostle Paul were looked upon as scripture. That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. So by 140 AD, the Gospel, the Acts, and the Apostle were looked upon as divinely inspired and authoritative and placed alongside the Old Testament canon. This meant 18 books out of 27 were thus considered canonical by the first half of the second century. But after, um, uh, there was only one exception, and that was the Gospel according to John, over which there was a great dispute toward the end of the second century. But after that, the Gospel of John was universally accepted. And it was about this time uh, that, for the first time, the word New Testament came into use. And it was used, not of all the books, but of most of them. And they were called the books of the New Covenant or Testament. So it's very interesting, as early as date as that, they were, they were looked upon as a, the Old Covenant. Here were the books of the New already forming. It's the most amazing thing. One of the early church fathers used that term. By 230 A.D., only Hebrews, the second letter of Peter, the second and third letter of John, James and Jude were not recognized. They were the only ones, uh, along with some um, apocryphal literature that some people felt should be included. The Shepherd of Hermas, by the way, here it is, you can look at it, Shepherd of Hermas, the Dedarche, there's um, the Gospel of the Hebrews, and a few other things there, there the Epistle of Barnabas, and a few other things that some people felt should be included in the New Testament books. Revelation was more or less generally accepted by then. By the 4th century, the 27 books of the New Testament, as we now have it, were universally recognized. In the third synod of the church at Carthage in 397 AD, it was said that besides these canonical scriptures, nothing was to be read in the church under the title of divine scripture. It's clear that apostolic authorship counted a tremendous amount with the early church and uh, it counted much in their recognition of these books as authoritative and inspired. And this is the reason why we have such a flood of literature, um, apocryphal literature in the New Testament again, all using the names of apostles. And if you look through this, you'll be absolutely staggered 
by some of these things. There are gospels of this and gospels of that and epistles by so and so and letters. It's absolutely amazing. Because everyone was trying to get things, many of them heretical, a lot of it um, certainly erroneous. They were trying to get it into the church by using an apostle's name or one of the great church leaders' names. I think all scholarship agrees that this literature is nowhere near the New Testament standard. And it is very, very interesting how gradually what was inspired was brought in even though there was much debate and dispute and what was not inspired, though at one time there was feeling that it should be kept in, was gradually pushed out until finally we have the books of the New Covenant, the con what we call the Canon of the New Covenant. Well, what can we say then in summarising all that we've said this evening? We can say this. The Canon of Scripture grew over many, many years and was searchingly selective. Ne yes, searchingly selective. Not perhaps with modern methods of criticism, but certainly, comparatively speaking, the rabbis did not just accept books just like that. They, 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 they debated them, they studied them, they compared them. It was a searchingly selective test that was applied to these books. It is most interesting that no religious body or council, be it of the Jews or of the Christians, ever made scripture or canonized books. They simply officially recognized what was universally recognized already. That's all. To this we must add the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit in both the church and the individual in the beginning, down through the years since, and now. The inward testimony of the Holy Spirit in the church and in the individual to the divine authority and inspiration of these books. And lastly, I might say that I think indeed the supreme wonder must be the oversight of the Holy Spirit in the whole process of the Bible's formation from its beginning to its end. It is a most fascinating subject and we have only been able to touch upon it this evening, really. Uh, there are many, many other lines we could profitably pursue. But the one thing, with all the difficulties, because we've got, sometimes got some strange ideas about the way the Lord um, guides and leads, in, in most amazing ways, the Lord uses centuries, over centuries, uh, and in different ways, he finally, uh, as it were, produces these 66 books uh, of the Bible. And um, I sometimes wonder whether, as the psalmist who wrote Psalm 119, 
I wonder whether we share with him the same reverence and the same love for God's word. It is an amazing volume, indeed.